The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and I am joined for The Bigger Picture today, as I am every fortnight, by Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Gracho Tendency blog. Uh, my, I think I can guess what story we're going to be covering um first extraordinary uh, testimony of Dominic Cummings. So first of all, who is he testifying to? So he, Dominic Cummings gave nearly eight hours of evidence yesterday to a joint session of the Commons Health and Science and Technology Committees. And the two MPs who chair these committees, uh, Dr. Greg Clark and Jeremy Hunt, are two former cabinet ministers in Jeremy Hunt's case, former health secretary, longest serving health secretary, and of former leadership contenders. So these are people who've been in government for a time who know Dominic Cummings by reputation. And in uh, Greg Clark's case as well, were on the other side of the argument when Mr Cummings was in Downing Street in 2019 pushing for a no-deal Brexit. So no love lost between Dominic Cummings and the MPs in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so nearly eight hours. Presumably you watched all of it. I, I did my very best. I, I had I have to I had to confess that there were other things I needed to do. But I kept I followed it as best I could, and thankfully, and I must say, thank goodness for the dedicated professionals at the BBC and the Guardian for live blogging it as it went along. But I did dip in, particularly for the the last section as well. Um, the where to begin with this as well? well I, I, that was the question I was about to say. Where do you start? Well, I mean, we can't really start at the beginning. That would be very tedious. But let's start perhaps with with what you consider the most explosive claim, and we'll work our way on from there. I think everything that the most explosive claim has probably focused on that of prime ministerial competence. That you have a man here who was um, venerated by Boris Johnson as being a genius, in his words, somebody who has worked closely with Mr Johnson for the last few years, the last five years since the EU referendum campaign, has arguably given Mr Johnson his political success in terms, first of all, of delivering Brexit, then uh, being the person who is his key strategic advisor during a very tricky first six months in number 10, and then played a major part in an election campaign that gave the Tories their biggest majority since 1987. However, this man is now saying that Boris Johnson, his former employer, is unfit to leave the country through the pandemic. Boris Johnson, time and time again, paints himself as a Churchillian figure. If you were listening to Dominic Cummings yesterday, you couldn't help but conclude that he was nothing more than Neville Chamberlain. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, A lot of his claims were about the failure of government altogether was part of the problem that without Boris Johnson, who was, of course, absent for a while when he got COVID himself and was hospitalised, that without Johnson, there was effectively no proper government. Dominic Cummings is somebody who has always been very sceptical of the Westminster parliamentary system of government and the embedded professional civil service. So Dominic Cummings took took it upon himself yesterday to say that tens of thousands of people had died who did not need to, and he apologised for the failings, disastrous shorts of of the standard that the public had a right to expect of ministers, officials and advisers. So it was nothing short of a damning indictment on the whole system. For somebody who's frequently mooted as an ideas man and whose self-professed aim was to rewire the system of British government, Cummings was in a a government that saw ministers who were 
deemed to fall short in several areas kept in post. I'm thinking about Pretty Patel and allegations of bullying, Robert Jenrick and allegations about donations handled to the Conservative Party. And he singled out the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, who he said should have been fired anywhere between 15 to 20 times for including claiming that he lied to cabinet colleagues. The fact, the basic facts, though, the bare bones of what Dominic Cummings was saying won't come as a surprise to many of us, not least of those of us who spend a good chunk of our time watching Westminster. And this was the fact that the government was not prepared 12 months ago for the pandemic and actually had a borderline complacent attitude to it, particularly from the very top going into January and February. It wasn't until mid to late March that they began to grasp the seriousness of the measures they would have to take because of the lack of preparedness. And as we know before, from the days when Jeremy Hunt was health secretary, that the preparations that had been made for pandemic were almost all for the wrong sort of pandemic, weren't they? Yes, they were for more so of a... So they had sort of wargamed it. Yes, they'd wargamed for a more pneumonia-based pandemic rather than a SARS-based virus, which is what COVID is. The There's also an interesting claim about how the officials were used, uh, particularly... Um, uh, Chief Scientific Advisor Sir Patrick Valence and Chris Whitty, who've become public faces in their own right, were used as a shield for government failings. And some of this criticism, I think, is is fair, but it's very difficult to swallow it when it comes from Dominic Cummings himself. And he is now claiming, you may remember that 12 months ago, he took a, a, a controversial trip. He now claims that was on security ground. And he is a man who is used... Well, let's remind ourselves, because, I mean, Cummings was the source of one of the government's most embarrassing um, episodes, wasn't he? I, I, he obviously put Barnard Castle on the map and Specsavers. <laughs> but, but, you know, even now it seems quite extraordinary. Just remind us of that, because, you know, there's so much that's happened in between. Well, so this is the incident. And if you looked... So if you looked, it went about just over 12 months ago. The government was enjoying uh, relatively favourable polls, uh, in terms of uh, its competence, people were actually, government competence was in a positive uh, rating for the first time in 10 years. The government's handling of the pandemic, the delayed lockdown decision, the measures and the the things like the furlough scheme were proving very popular. Some of that still washed through. But then there was a report that the Prime Minister's main advisor had driven 260 miles from his home in London with his wife and child to his family's home in County Durham and then driven to Barnard Castle at the height of the pandemic and after having tested positive for COVID-19. Dominic Cummings then gave a bizarre press conference in the Number 10 Rose Garden, which one of many memorable lines among this was that he insisted the trip to Barnard Castle had been to test his eyesight for a drive back to London. He now says he left London because of security concerns for his family. This all sounds very fair, but I am baffled as to why this did not come out at the time that he felt the need to stonewall the story all that and also he was he felt comfortable giving a press conference in the downing street rose garden all the trappings of power which is something that no advisor not even alistair campbell did yes, during their time there he let himself become the story this man has an unparalleled ego and opinion of himself and to a quite frank it's hard to to, to to draw anything else but the conclusion he treats the rest of us with a great deal of contempt yeah, it's interesting that I, I, I happened to check Facebook this morning and I'm a member of a, a, a music group that sort of skews north and where politics is normally of absolutely no interest to them. And I just happened to notice I mean, almost every single post coming through was from these people was utter derision for Cummings. Um, I mean, clearly what happened at Westminster was incredibly important and that the... the um, 
statements, the allegations that he make are terribly serious. But I wonder if this is going to be a bit like the, you know, the the wallpaper uh, and everything else, that as far as the actual general public is concerned, they're just not particularly interested. But, I mean, the, the I, I couldn't even say some of the things that they were calling Cummings. But clearly there's a sort of lack of belief among, I mean, it's not, the public in general, but it's just one group I was looking at. They just don't believe a word he says because probably of Barnard Castle. Yes, and unfortunately, some of it, what he says does tally with what's been reported in the media and what we've observed. So the government's repeated changes of mind, the flip-flopping of the prime minister. Ultimately, Dominic Cummings himself is somebody who... I think revels in the spotlight. I think he enjoys being controversial. He enjoys being seen as a disruptive figure. In truth, he's really none of these things. He's a man who the internet is full of people like him. They can write lengthy blogs about mm. so-called ideas that they've read and obscure texts. But we all we all know someone like Cummings, who's basically a sort of pub philosopher who has this seeming band of intellectualism. What he has done is that he's saying things now like, oh, I would have held a press conference. My relationship with my boss had broken down. I didn't leave till four months later, the end of October. And I would have held a press conference to announce that the government's approach would have been, was wrong. Now, he didn't do that. Now, he's all very well saying he was going to do that and everything in hindsight. But this is basically about reputation clearing. He's trying to set the record straight and he's enjoying yes. throwing stuff at the walls and seeing what sticks. And yes. I mean, I will never pretend that, the, that Matt Hancock has done everything perfectly throughout this crisis, but ultimately... His Dominic Cummings' criticisms cannot be taken as completely credible because he left out people like Michael Gove, who's his former boss, Rishi Sunak, who were other key decision makers in the room, and ultimately criticised a man with whom he helped get elected and work for and still took a hundred and something thousand pounds salary yes. off until late last year. He only uh, left when uh, he absolutely had to. And before the relationship broke down, though, he was an integral part of, of, of government and presumably an important decision maker himself. He was. He was the prime minister's most senior aide. He was given unparalleled control and access to meetings. He attended the SAGE sessions. He held, regularly held late meetings with the special advisers from across government, the coterie of them at five o'clock on Friday. He frog marched uh, one of Sajid Javid's advisors out of Downing Street with the police when he suspected she'd been leaking and had her sacked. Um, he presided over a tenure that saw three out of the four main permanent secretaries, including the cabinet secretary, sacked at the height of the pandemic when there were cabinet ministers who were done. And fundamentally, both the thing that links both him and Michael Gove is that they have worked closely with a man that they have both at separate points said publicly is not fit to be prime minister. These are people that you cannot credibly look in the eye, but they were in the room. They were there when decisions were taken and they do have some insight to share. But should we respect them and should we admire them for coming forward? Absolutely not. Uh, maybe this is a good moment to pause for breath. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. I'm in conversation for the bigger picture with Mike Indian, political commentator who is uh, uh, salivating over all the details of the testimony given uh, the, for the Parliamentary Committee yesterday by um, Dominic Cummings. Um, now, whatever he says about Matt Hancock, and maybe it's right, he says he should have been fired for at least 15, 20 things. I do wonder what sort of message it would have given had the health secretary been fired in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, well, if you want to panic the public, I can't help feeling that's a good way to do it. 
Okay, so you could imagine at the top level things remain very same, but there's been serious reworking not only of the UK's health infrastructure at this time because the government is choosing to embark on major NHS reform this year. They also abolished Public Health England and created a new institution, gave Dido Harding and contractors millions, if not billions of pounds worth of access as well. They had a test and trace program that admittedly has spent like fifteen billion pounds on that was not even meeting its seventy to eighty percent targets. So the health secretary could have been sacked, but he wasn't. I agree that it would have sent a message of panic as well. But they did. They were also embarking on below that level at an official level and at a internal Whitehall structural level, a major overhauling of the wiring of government. Now, at the height of a national crisis, it is not sound to do that. I criticised it last year when they did it. It is baffling that Michael Gove is allowed to go ahead and make a major speech on Whitehall reform. And I'm not saying for one minute that the civil service doesn't need reform. It does. There are, I know many people that work within it, my own partner is a civil servant as well. And I see the fading day to day, the fact that individuals rotate quickly. There are people, jobs where they stay too long. There's an innate, I would say, culture of uh, caution and conservatism with a small C within the civil service, but they ultimately are the professionals on who we depend to run the country. And they, to, to make them the scapegoats for a lot of this, particularly at the same time as using the officials the way they did. And I would I'd say that Dominic Cummings, given the role he played, it's all very well for him to criticise it now. But also he's self-aggrandising on this. The quote that he talks about the first lockdown delay, I bitterly delayed that I didn't hit the emergency panic button earlier than I did. He is not the prime minister of this country. Mm. He was a paid political advisor who comes in to advise Boris Johnson. It is the Prime Minister's job to decide what to do with this. If Boris Johnson chose to lock down too late or too early, that is a matter for him. Dominic Cummings is attaching himself to this role. He claimed he stayed in Downing Street from July to October last year to try and keep Boris Johnson under control. That is not the job of an advisor. It is the job of Parliament to check the executives. It is the job of the Cabinet to check the Prime Minister. It is the job of the Sovereign to take advice on whether the Prime Minister is fit for office or not. And it is ultimately the responsibility of the public to elect the Parliament that chooses the government. It is not the responsibility of unelected political advisors to take decisions and to build alternative power structures around people. It's effectively realising you've put someone who's unfit into office and trying to build a support system around them. It does not work. And it says a lot about Mr Cummings' own judgment and severe lack of credibility that he felt he should have that role. Yes, of course, last summer, it didn't feel as if Parliament was really there and able to... um... Uh, hold the government or the prime minister to account. There was well, there were months, weren't there? Really, when you just felt the parliament was barely there. This is the trouble with it being at the height of the lockdown that the UK's existing political system is very much based on in-person contact yeah. and meetings. It has adapted well, I would say. The fact the select committee session took place yesterday is testament to that. That you know you have a very you have the prime minister's most senior aide speaking on the public record before MPs. He is um every those words are recorded he can't be liable and he he's basically given a free forum for which to air his views before a committee of senior parliamentarians but the one the major checks that has been on the prime minister's activity is there's been a lot of concern from the conservative parliamentary party who are ultimately the most important constituency for boris johnson between elections about how the government's use of executive powers at a time when Dominic Cummings was still in Downing Street. I forget, he only left in October before the second lockdown came in. So most of the key decisions that defined the last year or so were taken with him in the room. And there is still a great deal of question about the wisdom, of course, of the length of the lockdown, the first lockdown as well. And for all of Boris Johnson's 
caution, I think, around this. It's understandable, and his reluctance to lock down when he did at the last possible moment is relatable. I think to say that you should have hit the panic button sooner is a bit rich in hindsight, and to say that when you're not in the room. And ultimately, he this line about the NHS being smashed within weeks, it didn't happen. The health service held up. It's robust. The NHS is actually now embarking on a massive vaccine rollout programme, which, to the government's credit, it did get in early on, but it's also riding an undeserved wave of popularity. The pettiness, though, with which Mr Cummings pursues evidence mustn't be forgotten. Not only did he go after Matt Hancock, who, to be fair, is a cabinet minister and is someone in the public eye, the repeated references, bizarrely, somehow, to uh, Carrie Simons, the, the Prime Minister's fiance, talking about her stories and conduct behind the scenes. Mm. This is a, this is deeply unfair. She she is a private individual. She has no role in public life apart from being the wife of the Prime Minister. There isn't even a formal title for her as well. Now, there's a lot of talk about friends of Carrie behind the scenes mm. and different power factions. We know Boris Johnson loves to have different factions mm. vying for his attention, vying for his interest. He likes a bit of chaos behind the scenes as well. There's not the best way to run it. But to repeatedly say that she was, quote, crackers over a story about her dog in The Times is ridiculous because it's not relevant to the pandemic. Government has enough bandwidth to deal with both, arguably. And of course, the Prime Minister's spouse is going to have an interesting input because they are the closest person to them, the same way that Philip May advised Theresa May. No one batted neither that. I would argue there's a strong degree of sexism here focused on Miss Simons. And it's a little hard to take the criticism seriously when the tabloids enjoy splashing pictures of her in her swimwear and they're not questioning what why the Prime Minister took a, a gift of a holiday that was grossly undervalued when declaring it as well. What do you think the legacy of, of yesterday's testimony is going to be? Or is it going to be uh, next week's fish and chip wrappings? Or do you think that there will be ramifications? I think it's only selective things that cut through. I think that a lot of um, people don't really realize just how keenly people's sense of fairness i think was hurt by the barnard castle incident as well and we had to see this and reflected in the government's popularity rankings but there's this chip 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 going away this little gradual erosion i think of boris johnson's brand that the more he's associated with these sort of quirky people that it's very easy for people to say oh dominic cummings is this he's not credible but ultimately boris johnson used to really rate him and i think a lot of people by the time we get uh, the next couple of years, at the moment, I think the Prime Minister is largely safe because of the, the pandemic vaccine response. But there is a question, really, the more the government's handling of this comes out, the more the um, the claims about his judgment are raised and the more people, particularly in the red wall seats, I think we'll see a lack of delivery and a lack of clarity around things like the levelling up agenda. They will begin to work that they haven't just given themselves over to a snake oil merchant. And the Conservative Party is good at one particular thing, which is staying in power. At the moment, Boris Johnson has a sort of 16-point lead over mm-hmm. Labour, 46 to 29 in an opinion poll from the weekend. If he wins the Batley and spend by-election, that's going to further cement him. Labour are doing half the job for him by just trying to tear Keir Starmer down after just over a year in the job. But the Prime Minister's position, his authority and his judgment are being consistently questioned from all sides, from former cabinet colleagues, not just by the opposition, from his own MPs, and crucially, by the man he once thought was integral to his operation and is now proving to be his worst enemy. Okay, well, let's uh, change topic. 
sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. So as you mentioned there, we've got another by-election coming up uh, soon, Batley and Spen. Um, what is going to happen? You, you mentioned the possibility of the Conservatives winning. Is that very likely? Oh. Who, who, first of all, who've Labour put up? So Labour's candidate at the moment is interestingly, she is the sister, her name is Kim Ledbetter. She's the sister of the former MP Joe Cox, who was sadly murdered in 2019 by a right wing extremist. The Conservatives have selected Ryan Stevenson, a local councillor from Leeds. The seat was previously held by Tracy Braben, um, who is now the elected Metro Mayor of West Yorkshire. The majority in 2019 was down to 3,500 from nearly 9,000 in 2017 as well. This by-election is arguably a fairer test, I think, of Keir Starmer's leadership than um, Hartlepool was, because out of the last three elections, the combined Brexit Party Conservative vote split was the only reason that Labour held the seat in two of those elections, basically. Mm. So the, the Brexit Party vote in this area... Uh, is a lot lower so this argument but the same issue applies that there is a comparatively united front around the conservatives by-elections usually tend to go against the governing party Hartlepool was only the third time since 1982 that a governing party has gained a by-election seat and two of those have happened one at Copeland uh, in the last few years as well the other one under Theresa May and this one under Boris Johnson so this says a lot about the weakness of the Labour Party however I'm going to put my neck out on this one I think that the Labour will hold the seat i think first of all they've chosen a candidate with a good connection to the seat with the former mp somebody who is uh articulate is well known in the public eye and i think will resonate with local voters i also think that labor will pull its socks up for this campaign as well they're not trying to deal with stuff across the campaign i think kistama will probably have a canny approach and leave this one probably more in the hands of angela rayner and annalise dodds who's the new labor party chair but going into the other part of the election, <clears throat> we have to consider what a loss would mean as well. And the majority is only three and a half thousand. So it's still perfectly possible for the Tories to take it. I think if they do, that would be a nail in Keir Starmer's coffin. I think he would be gone as Labour leader very, very yes. soon after that. Not fair, in my opinion, as well. I think Jeremy Corbyn was able to endure several but he had one good election result where he came second and the other um, uh, local election results were nearly all quite bad. Yes. The MP does, or the prospective MP does seem well chosen, whereas the Hartlepool candidate for Labour seemed almost designed to antagonise well, voters. Well, to, to be given somebody, the difference between the two candidates couldn't be more stark. Plus there were numerous gaffes associated with Dr Paul Williams, who had been a Labour MP for two years in Stockton South and the other element in this as well is that by-elections are microcosms then they're, they're only snapshots they're lower turnout they should be the most politically engaged people so it's not necessarily the fairest thing to gauge Keir Starmer on but there's a question of Labour Party morale what he needs to do is to win this to shore up concerns about this but there's also repeated talk looking further south about what happened in the local elections in southern conservative seats concerns of things like Winchester, which is now has yes. held by a majority of less than a thousand. Uh, Dominic Raab's seat in, in Isha as well, uh, the majority there, two and a half thousand. So are the Conservatives seeing, are we seeing this sort of 
political alignment away from the Tories. The Tories become more of a Northern Party and the Lib Dems and the Greens become the dominant party in the South. Either way, Labour's losing out there. They're not winning the seats that they won under Tony Blair. They're winning in the traditional strongholds, really, of their last sort of survival. The only place Labour did do well recently and deserves full credit is keeping the control of the Welsh Assembly for something like the fifth <laughs> term now. And that is down, I think, to the competence of Mark Drakeford's handling or the perception of confidence of Labour's handling in that area as well. Keir Starmer needs to hold those examples tight. But unfortunately, those um, successes seem to be in spite of him, not because of. OK, well, let's move on then to... Uh... BBC and all the revelations about Martin Bashir and the sort of self-flagellation in that, that report um, and what the political ramifications are. Well, we know there's going to be significant political ramifications from the Panorama programme and the report that came out earlier in the week, which showed that Martin Bashir fabricated documents in order to gain access to Princess Diana uh, the two years before her death. The 1995 interview remains one of the most important and significant journalistic scoops of modern times. It lifted the lid on relationships inside the royal family, but also, I think, exposed in the eyes of Princess Diana's family and certainly her sons, Prince William and uh, Prince Harry, a woman who was vulnerable and arguably in need of support to a world that she wasn't ready to experience yet. And there seems to be a heavily implication from those closest to Diana that the Panorama programme breached the uh, last remaining strands of support and left her unprepared. And there was a, a line drawn by Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge, through to his mother's death two years later in 1907, a, a connection made by their uncle, Earl Spencer, and by the Duke of Sussex as well. Martin Bashir's culpability in this is beyond doubt. The question is, though, that the people who were senior leadership at the time of the BBC, including former Director General Lord Tony Hall, who only left office a couple mm. of years ago, seemed to pursue a culture of caution around this and not to pursue the allegations against Bashir enough. And Martin Bashir was appointed to the BBC again five years ago as religious affairs editor after a stint in America. The interview that arguably made his career. The BBC as an institution is something that we should all be proud of, I think, as, as a notion, a publicly funded broadcaster with accessible content that makes, um, you know, that I think sets the standard in many cases for journalism. But it has repeatedly suffered, I think, from bad management. I know a lot of friends who've worked in the BBC and seen frustrations, and it also gives the government political ammunition for the mid-term Royal Charter review coming up as well. There have already been overhauls to BBC governance. There's a new chair, a new board of oversight. Ofcom now has a role in overseeing the BBC. And for Tim Davy, the Director General, it represents a fresh challenge to deal with, particularly as the government had backed down on decriminalisation of the licence fee last year. That sort of measure now appears to be more politically palatable. The form of BBC governance is definitely coming down the line. Yes. Uh, okay. Intriguing. And then before we um, finish, I think you want to have a uh, uh, a brief mention of the uh, new head of the DUP. Yes. Uh, and discuss Northern Ireland politics, which a uh, subject obviously we keep returning to. Northern Ireland politics is is arguably the least understood element, and probably should be the most scrutinised element of. Um, UK politics in general, it's it's a fascinating microcosm. And I'm lucky enough that the people I work with in my role at Connect Public Affairs do have insight into this. So I was chatting to a, a DUP councillor who's a friend about what the, the Edwin Poots leadership means. And it, it really, it can't be estimated just how much damage the Arlene Foster 
uh, resignation and ousting of her has done. Now, obviously, there were questions over her leadership. There were numerous um, issues raised about uh, the the relationship in government has been strained, certainly since um, uh, Peter Robinson left office and uh, Martin McGuinness passed away. Her relationship with Michelle O'Neill, who is his successor, is not a warm one. And both the Unionist parties in Northern Ireland, the DUP and the UUP, which was the more moderate arm of it and initially in um, <laughs> in government, have been um, at odds recently. So Edwin Poots is seen to be further on the right. He's close to the fundamentalist Christian roots of the DUP. Arlene Foster was partly brought down by an abstention in a vote against banning gay conversion therapy. There's still this question about who will take over the first minister's role in Northern Ireland and the executive has been restarted for just over a year now and Edwin Poots has said initially he wouldn't take it. I understand that he may uh, be tempted to take on the first minister's job himself if his party believe him. A guy called Mervyn Story who's an MLA, member of the Northern Ireland Assembly for North Antrim had been tipped to take over the first job but is now reported to be having reservations but the crucial thing is that big unionist block of the DUP and the UUP that once seemed to dominate Northern Irish politics and acted as a bulwark against that trigger for a referendum could be in danger of being eroded for a nationalist majority in Sinn Féin and for unionists in Northern Ireland that is incredibly worrying that is the, uh, the, the burden which Edwin Poots has taken on he may want to remain as Northern Ireland agriculture minister, but he may have to step up and moderate his language if he's going to keep the power sharing agreement and executive working and keep Northern Ireland in the UK. Mike, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike will be back to analyse what's happening in politics in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.